Welcome back to the Eater Upsell podcast from the Vox Media Podcast Network. My name is Daniel Janine. I am a producer here at Eater. My co-host, Amanda Clute, Eater's editor-in-chief, is out for this intro, but she will be around for some parts of this episode. Today, we're talking all things cocktails in 2018, uh, or at least three really important stories in the cocktail world. First, Dave Arnold is finally opening a new bar. Dave Arnold is the cocktail world's mad scientist, beloved figure. Uh, His last bar closed in 2016, and everyone was super upset, and everyone is super jazzed that he's finally opening again. We're talking to him about all the crazy things he's doing there and what it's like to open a bar now as opposed to in 2012. After that, Amanda and I are talking with Neil Bodenheimer. Neil is a bartender from New Orleans who just took over ownership of the biggest cocktail event of the year, Tales of the Cocktail. The previous owners got in some trouble. There was some serious controversy. So we're talking to Neil about what the event is and how he is going to make it better and how he is picking up uh, where they where they left off or picking up after them, I guess. Uh, and then talking to a woman named Julia Momose, who is at the forefront of a very important movement or shift in the cocktail world, um, the move towards lower proof and even zero alcohol cocktails or spirit free, as she calls them. We're going to find out why Julia hates the word mocktail. But first, here is Dave Arnold. For those who don't know, Dave is a trained sculptor whose obsession with tinkering and gear led him to developing machinery for some of New York's most innovative restaurants like WD-50. You later became the director of culinary technology at the ICC slash FCI back then. I actually went there. Really? Yeah, you were not there when I went there. What, uh, what uh, program were you in? Just, you know, French. You did the full six-month French? Thing, yeah. Oh, nice. Yeah, who full. was your chef? I had Chef Sixto. Oh, yeah. Sixto, he's a good guy. He's a great guy, man. I <laughs> I came back like honestly a week after I was finished my program. I spent you know, months with this guy. Oh, forgive me, man. What's your name again? Oh yeah, yeah. they turn through people, but yeah, I mean, he's like, like he, I have ten thousand students, man. Did yeah. he uh, bring in any? Uh, see, he used to hunt and bring stuff in, right? Occasionally, and, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you then ended up through a series of a lot of things, founding Booker and Dax, which is. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of cocktail obsessives would say it was there the the church of moving cocktails forward. Uh, would you you open 2012, 2013? Something like that. Yeah, yeah. We were open for five years uh, until we you know Sambar, which we were the we were the carbuncle Momofuku. on Momofuku Sambar, and uh, <laughs> they renovated and they're like we want the space back, so they took the space back. Um, and it was sad. You know, it was sad. I mean, the interesting thing about Booker and Dax was when, uh, so, you know, so Booker and Dax, the equipment company, right? Right. Uh, which is still extant, right? We make the Spinzol, the culinary centrifuge. We make the Searzol, which is the, you know, the handheld uh, broiler right. torch attachment. We should quickly say the, the bar started as an equipment company. Yeah. So we started out as this uh, equipment company. They had this space at Sambar that wasn't doing a lot of money. And they, you know, they said, well, why don't you, we don't really know how to make equipment. Mm, you do a lot of bar stuff. Why don't you, why don't you open a bar? And I was like, all right. Uh, and so we did it. But quite literally, the place never shut down. We did zero renovation. You know, we walked in there and, you know, I changed the, a little bit the way service worked behind it. Because that place started as the original milk bar. Right. 
you know, right, Christina right. Tozzi's place. And then she hightailed it out of there and it had, went through a couple of iterations, but mainly stayed a waiting room for Sambar. And we were, we didn't shut down even one day. You know, we just walked in and started service, trained with a very good crew. And I think, you know, most people would see that as an extreme disadvantage. And in a lot of ways it was. But what it, what it, what it forced us to do was have a program that was just built around the team and the drinks and not the space. And I think like that also informed what I th- my favorite part about Booker and Dax was, was, was the feeling of it. Right. So it had this kind of double feel of it's a kind of a neighborhood, nice feel like, you know, mellow, like no one's in like a uniform. It wasn't, as they say, crisp. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, uh, you know, it was a little bit like like a neighborhood bar and had that vibe. So you could bring a date there. You didn't have to feel self-conscious. It wasn't one of those things. But at the same time, we were doing the very best. I'm an uncompromising bastard on a lot of things. And so everyone who was there pushed hard to, to do, um, to do their best and to, um, really treat cocktails and work as a practice, a real practice, you know, not just coming and clocking your hours. And so it was, it was fun. It was good, you know, but hopefully the new place will, I want that same feel, but I do want it to be a little more crisp, a little more crisp, a little more crisp. You know what I mean? Like, um, but anyway, you know, I, I love that feel. I don't want to be, you know, at the time we were like, look, we don't want this to be a cocktail pal. It's not a cocktail palace. You are not genuflecting at the altar of the bartender here. Mm-hmm. It's about you. Um, you know, and that's. I think that's still, even though this program is quite different, the new place. It's that's, you know, the philosophy. It's it's more about making the guest feel great than it is about anything else. Big news is you're opening, you're finally opening another place. Yeah. I'll say to anyone that listens, it's amazing how hard it is in New York City to just hand someone a brick of cash and start working. Because honestly, I mean, I could care less about any of the stuff other than working. I just want to work. Like all the other stuff is is nonsense to me. Mm -hmm. It's really, I hate it. You know, like, and the amount of stuff you have to do just, just to sling a drink in this town is bananas. You know what I mean? And then so if you want to do it and do a good job or do something different, it's like it's like a bunch of bananas. You know what I mean? It's More just it's, it's just it's crazy. The new place is called Existing Conditions. Existing Conditions. You finally got it. You've slogged through the hell of New York. Oh yeah. Well, we thought we had slogged all the way through it and then you ran into the last minute of the liquor board changed the way that they do their permitting and so you know, we're paying this high, high, you know, priced liquor attorney shark person. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they're like, oh, don't worry, this, that. Do. And then the liquor, like, oh, no, we changed the rules. Literally. What'd your we, shark guy say? He's like, hey, <laughs> the rules have changed. And we're like, oh, really? And, and so, like, he's like, aren't you supposed to navigate the waters? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, what the hell? That's what sharks do. Yeah. Anyway, like, they eat small fish and they navigate the water. <laughs> they have to navigate or they die. If they stop swimming, they die. No, but nothing. He doesn't. Because what are they going to do? They, here's the thing. It's like, it's like a good friend of mine uh, who's a, a lawyer says, you know, the decisions of the judges are arbitrary but also final. Like, there's nothing you can do about it. You know, so we're, uh, what happened was is that we were supposed to have the liquor. They used to just grant the temporary. So you go to the community board mm-hmm. and the community board invariably says, no, we want <laughs> you to, we want you to shut down at like 9 PM and like, you know, like all oh, this is list of crazy demands, right? Because 
like the reality of it is, and I don't mean to insult, you know, it's, the way it works in New York City is, is that community boards, there are like a lot of good people who want to do, you know, well in the community. But then there's always like one or two people who don't have any freaking thing to do with their life other than show up and be like, I don't like that. That's ruining the neighborhood. Right. I hate it. We don't need another bar. We don't need another bar. And then you're like, and you're like, and that person, if anyone complains, and 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 there's no one, people only here in New York, I don't know whether it's the same everywhere in the country, but nobody cares to help people. They only care to shut people to ne- negative. You never have someone coming in and be like, we need a bar. You know what I mean? Right. You don't have like that. So you have like one person who's like yelling about not doing it. There's nobody on the board like, oh, I love I need this. Well, so like invariably community boards say no. And it used to be that if the place had a a working liquor license before that was still active, the SLA, which is the state liquor authority, would say, okay, we're going to grant you a temporary. And then when we get around to it in a couple of months, like two, three months, Mm -hmm. we'll meet and then we'll have a discussion. And odds are you're going to get it. So that's what the lawyer, that's what the lawyer did. Yeah. And you don't want to take on necessarily the other person's actual liquor license because you have to take their company on and you have to take them on as a partner for two years. So you take on also their liabilities. So God forbid they did something terrible, had some sort of terrible <laughs> hiring practice, yeah. uh, you know, were, you know, uh, you know, sexual assaulters, any list of a horrible thing. You are liable for that because you're running their company. It's much better if you can start clean. So midstream of this, it took so long for the negotiations because, as I told you, you'd be amazed how hard it is to hand someone a big brick of cash. Incredibly hard. Much harder than it would be to hand me a big brick of cash. People, if you want to hand me a big brick of cash, I will return your telephone calls. I typically don't return anyone's telephone calls, but if it comes that the voicemail says, big brick of cash, I'll make sure I get back. Uh, but yeah, apparently that didn't work on the people we were trying to buy this, this thing from. So they changed it and they're like, yeah, we're not doing the temporaries anymore. And we're like, what? And they're like, yeah. And then like, we just... You know, the meeting after meeting, we just weren't on the docket because they're incredibly underfunded. And so we've just been waiting for the the permitting to go through. So we're just sitting here burning through So you're cash. ready to roll. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. So it's it's uh, the last time you opened was about 2012, right? Around then, yep. Talk to me about uh, the differences in opening 2018, just in terms of the cocktail scene versus back then. Um, I mean, the drinks, not a lot of people are doing like the super um, – super tech forward stuff. I mean, you have like aviary, that's a very different kind of program. Like we, we were using a lot of technology or, and we'll be using a lot of technology, but really, um, most of it's behind the scenes. Like the drinks kind of taste like the drinks, uh, you know, there are, you know, people are taking on some of the things that we, we were working on, but a lot of people are still, you know, doing, you know, hard classic work. I think there's more ingredient driven cocktail work now than there, there used to be. Um, I mean, sometimes I think it goes kind of a little overboard. Like for all like the technology, you know, techniques that, you know, we like to use, we favor more simple kind of flavors. I always, you know, I always yell at people. They're like, I want to use, I want to use this crazy ingredient from the, you know, the Himalayas. And I want to use this crazy ingredient from the criminal. Like, hey, whoa, 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 one, stay one per cocktail. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like if you're going to use some crazy, uh, you know, 
I don't actually have anything from the Himalayas. I don't know why I picked the Himalayas. Because I want to. I want to get these uh, weird – there's these weird um, – I can't actually serve it. I don't think I can serve it. There's uh, – is it the Himalayas? It's Turkish. It's all over there, these mountain regions. They have these poisonous rhododendrons and they get the honey from this poisonous rhododendron. And the honey kind of like makes you a little uh, stunad. You know, it's like got a little bit of a stupefactant in it. And so people – they call it mad honey and people – you know, they use it. But it's like, uh, you know, I can't really serve that to people because uh, I don't know how you're going to react. Like, what if you what if you go crazy and, yeah. you know, eat your roommate like Big Lurch ate his roommate after he was high on PCP? I don't know what it's going to do to you. You know what I mean? And then you're in jail for the for the rest of your life because you ate your roommate. All press is good press, though, right? Well, I mean, I don't know. It didn't do so much for Big Lurch's career. I mean, for us. Yeah, but I don't want to be that person. Like, Or, you know, you have uh, – people do knucklehead things all the time. I, I think, you know, you have an obligation when someone's coming into your bar to give them stuff that they know how to deal with. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So um, the assumption is that this is not your first drink. And so you know what alcohol does to you. That's the assumption mm-hmm. uh, that we make. Uh, what else? I think – Non-alcs are very big now. Um, we're taking a, you know, a, we're taking a good look at non-alcoholics, um, just because I think it's a problem that a lot of people are working on hasn't 100% been solved yet. Um, so one of the things we're doing is charging as much for our non-alcoholic drinks as our alcoholic drinks. Because and we're spending more time and more money, like our non-alcoholic drinks typically cost us as much or more uh, than the alcoholic drinks, uh, and we spend a lot more time on it. What about like keto, paleo, gluten-free, all this kind of shit? Uh, I mean, like, I mean, allergies. Oh, allergies. I mean, look, we have look. We'll we'll tell you what's in our drinks. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you something. I hate is uh, I I look. I don't hate Tito's vodka. But the marketeers for Tito's Vodka who are like, and, you know, Tito's Vodka is gluten-free. I hate that so much because all vodkas are gluten-free. All distilled beverages are gluten-free because (laughs) gluten does not evaporate and distill. It stays in with whatever the garbage is in the mesh. So it's like they're all gluten-free. So, like, to say Tito's Tito's Vodka is gluten-free implies that other vodkas are not gluten-free or that other distilled spirits are not gluten-free. And it's a freaking lie. So I think that whoever came up with that, they're making a lot of money. They should chip themselves. They should just like they should just realize that they have done harm to the world and they should just just throw themselves in a wood chipper. I'm not going to do it cuz I'm not a violent man, but they should realize they should realize the wrong they have done. Um, what what drinks do you think are you doing that are uh... actually? Let's take a step back. I mean, you 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 talk about it a lot, but what is a a gimmick that you've been seeing around these days? Oh, gimmicks are funny. So people, because some people would like if they don't know what you're doing, they might describe it as a gimmicky bar occasionally. Right? Yeah, we yeah we're we're very anti, super anti gimmick. Like right. if we're doing something, it's there for a reason, even if it's flashy. Right. Mm-hmm. So we use like red hot poker to flame drinks. But, you know, I can do you. I won't because we don't have it. Do we have a we don't have an induction burner behind the bar. So I can't do the side by side and show you the taste difference between right. the two. But right. it is there for a taste effect. It is also flashy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, 
look, I think I don't want the guests to have to care about the technique. I mean, if they like that, mm-hmm. then we're happy to talk to them ad nauseum about the techniques behind it. But really, the guests shouldn't have to care how we did something. Um, and so it's really more about kind of their experience. The techniques are there for us to achieve an effect that we want to achieve. It's more it, – it's, it's, it's hard to explain. So if you said to me, I would – let's say you didn't care. I know you care, but let's say you didn't care, mm-hmm. right? You show up at the bar. I can play that part. Right. You don't care. Like, does that mean that I shouldn't do my best job for you? No, right? And so my best job for you is to get you something that you like, but something that I am personally invested enough in, me as a, as a human, that I'm personally invested enough in right. to care enough to do my best job. And regardless of whether you care about what that means for me, the fact that we are doing our best job, the fact that we are focused on getting better, the fact that we have a purpose, we have a set of constraints, and we have a desire to 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 make and to serve will rub off on you regardless of whether you care about the specifics of what we're doing or not. That's my theory. So then how do you pro- – when you bring a, a drink over to a table and you haven't really gotten a sense of what the customers are like – are you giving a whole story at, or are you waiting to, to feel them out on the first one? Uh, yeah, so I think a lot depends. Look, look the, the existing conditions is a lot bigger than Booker Index uh, in, in a lot of senses, right? So there was no fighting at the top. Like existing conditions, you have Don and I. Don Lee, again, is Dave's partner at Existing Conditions and another famed tech-obsessed bartender. And then, you know, you have, you know, the, the our crew – and unlike – we did encourage it at Booker and Dax. We encourage a lot of fighting among ourselves. We encourage this like intense debate almost kind of fighting. So there's a lot more creative um, clashing. I forget where we started with this. But yeah, I know. I like this better. Have you guys been getting into it about stuff? Yeah. And it's like – but I think that's like super helpful. Yeah. You know, like you don't want to live in a yes box. You know what I mean? You want there to be – you want there to be this kind of uh, clash. And then, you know, when you present the drink, when you present the program, it's like, okay, this is what it is. Like, you know, you're all on board. You fight, you fight, you fight. And then, you know, you're like, okay, I have won or I have lost the argument <laughs> and I'm on board. You know, we're right, on right, board. Right. And then you, you go you go forward. And yeah. And so I've, you know, won some, I've lost some. What's one you've lost on? I think we're going to put carbonated drinks on ice. I'm still trying to figure out exactly how. Uh, oh, you hate that. Yeah, I do. Uh, but um, look, here's the, here's the here's the thing. So one of the things that the you know that I've always told people at a, at a bar is make sure when you're doing recipe development, make sure your drinks pass a 15 minute test. So put it you know make a drink, put it down because your guests may be slow drinkers, right? right? And so you know, do I hate that? Yes. But, you know, like that might be the way it is. Uh, you know, I'd rather you drink the drink quickly and then just wait longer before you have your next <laughs> one. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, then let your drink slowly die on the, on the table. But I mean, some drinks are meant to last a long time, like old fashioned. But uh, anyway, so pass a 15 minute test. Is it still good after 15 minutes? And so, you know, I got in this heated argument because the ice waters down the freaking drink, which makes it even fewer bubbles and, you know, more nucleation sites, losing carbonation, like, you know, you know, you know, 
gnashing of teeth, wailing and gnashing of teeth, and right. like we're all going to be thrown into the pit of Sheol, all this stuff. You know what <laughs> I mean? It's horror. And then I was like, okay, look it, look it. And then Don was like, people like these drinks on ice. It is is better experience for them because this is the way they want their long drinks, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, uh. And so we're like having this argument. So finally we were like, okay, everybody shut up. Everybody shut up. Make make two drinks. Put, you know, put one in a flute, same drink, same time. Put the other one on ice. We cheated a little bit. So I, I LN'd liquid nitrogen. I LN'd the ice a little bit to get rid of the initial surface moisture so there wouldn't be an, an initial garbification technique of, uh, of initially watering down right. the stuff. So, so we did that. And then I was like, pour them in and then set your timers for 10 minutes and 15 minutes. And we're going to taste these suckers. And... Whatever we think is the more in, forget our feelings, forget my feelings, your feelings. I don't care. Like, let's assume no one's ever, what's the more enjoyable drink? And it was the one with the ice in it because yeah. yes, it had lower bubbles, but it was still colder and it was still more enjoyable. So I was like, I have lost. And <laughs> on a fair playing field, I have lost. And so we're still trying to figure out a way to, the best way to do it. Like, are we going to LN chill the ice beforehand? The problem is, is that when you add uh, acid, like a uh, clarified lime to it, like sometimes that'll freeze at the bottom of the, of the ice. So we're just trying to figure it out how it's going to work. But yes, it will probably be on ice. What are, what are some of the drinks that you're doing? I know you're, smuggle, you're smuggling some water in from somewhere. So that, by the way, if you're a, a, you know, a resident of New York State, even not, like we don't take, you know, we, if you are a resident of New York State, you, your taxes go towards producing this water that we're getting. Saratoga, New York, is famed for several things. Horse racing, the putative uh, birthplace of the potato chip, which is preposterous, by the way. But Saratoga New Springs, New York, became famous because of its water. And it has some incredibly unique and, to many people, repellent water because it has very highly salt – some of them are very highly salty. They're like – they're, you can't, they're, they taste unlike any water you can get anywhere. So we harvest the saltiest. The, like It's one-third the salinity of seawater. Mm. Like if you drank this on your own, on its own as water, as, as Don and a bunch of us did, we went up there. We had the worst hangover we've ever had in our life and not one drop of alcohol just because we had consumed so much salt. We had consumed oh so much salt. So there's only a small amount in the cocktail, but it adds uh, – it's got a very unique mineral content, and it comes out of the ground. You ready for this? comes out of the ground carbonated. What? Yes. Yes. And I'm a bubbles guy. As you know, we talking before about bubbles. I'm a bubbles guy. So, like, honestly, when I found out that, like, water comes out of the ground carbonated, I was like, yes. Yes. <laughs> it was, like, you know, my How wife was How much carbonation? Like, a lot. Yeah. Yeah. My wife's like, we can't move there. Like she, you know, it's like yeah. you're you're opening a bar, you know, you're opening a bar. I have an architecture practice. You know, the kids are in school. So you've smuggled in some water. Yeah. You've uh, you've turned a, a a waffle into a drink. Oh yeah. So we took. Uh, so Don is actually he's interested in waffle life in general. We ended up not doing that as our food concept, but one of the concepts for food was like everything as waffle. <laughs> everything everywhere will be waffle. And Don is a huge like waffle aficionado. Uh, so I brought in some waffles and we hacked them up and we, uh, put them into, uh, this is like, so like, it's such a like old school way to do it. We just like, literally I was like, okay, hack up the waffle, uh, throw it into the wild turkey, let it sit, squeeze the waffle out like a sponge, 
throw the waffle away, let it settle out or spin out and get the clear waffle, uh, waffle old fashioned. But it's a perfect counterpart to one of Don's most famous drinks, the, the, uh, the Benton's old fashioned, which is a bacon old fashioned. Mm. So you can get a bacon old fashioned and a waffle old fashioned and, you know. Have yeah, yourself a perfect. breakfast of champions there. Last thing, what what is this tiki culture movement, and has it has it informed your bar choices at all? So that's another place where I have lost. Look, here's the, here's the thing. So uh, I happen to like I like tiki drinks, right? But I've never I've used tiki flavors. My bartenders Did have you, used tiki what flavors. Is, what is in your opinion? Tiki. Well, I'm not like a like I said like I I'm, I'm almost the wrong guy to ask about it, but you know these kind of a lot most many rum based many split yeah. rum based drinks right so mixtures of different rums uh, heavy on kind of tropical and fruity right. heavy on um, alcohol and sugar and often poured over. Uh, copious amounts of ice, right? Your fave. And so, yeah, my fave, right? So pebble, like pebble ice, right? So we have like a Scotsman. So like, a, uh, so Tiki, this- anyway, The culture is taken off though. Oh yeah. There are tons of them in New York City and all the major well, cities. Part but, of it is nostalgia based, right? right? And so- and They'll come in the weird skulls and right. giant umbrellas and things like that. Yeah. Right, right. So you have- Roughly speaking, it's a continuum, right? But you have people who are interested in the drink styles, right? You have people who are interested in the historical and people who are just interested in kind of nostalgia kitsch. Mm. And so any one of those three people, they can shade into each other, right? They can be all three. Um, those That whole crew is drawn to uh, Tiki, right? And so the interesting thing about – one of the interesting things about Tiki drinks in general – is that for a long time they were straight garbage. They were made with just just horrific crap, crap, crap ingredients. Like jungle juice. Yeah, or like, you know, in like, you know, like even like a lot of the original stuff, no one made it with real products anymore. It's all like powdered mix. It's just freaking just abominations. Like horrific. <laughs> um and like I think what's, you know, because there are lots of interesting juices in it, the kind of fresh juice good ingredient craft movement kind of latched onto this as something that could really be resurrected and mm. brought back to a really interesting place. And so I think there's a lot of room for cocktail people to work with it. For me, the main problem with it was is that these drinks, all, almost all of them start out as um, – so when you have a drink that has both acid and sugar in it, right, uh, you, when it's warmer and or less diluted, it tastes overly sweet. So when you have, let's say, a daiquiri, which is one of you know, like God's great drinks, it's like one of the great. It's been bastardized everywhere, but a real daiquiri is like you know, is uh, it, it's it's a test drink. If you want to see how good your bartender is, order a daiquiri. You know what I mean? It's one of those. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's the tamago of uh, of <laughs> drinks. Uh, you know, if you that's if that's how you judge your sushi person, based on their tamago. Uh, but uh, what happens is is that it starts out under diluted because it has to survive on this very fine grained ice, which dilutes quite a bit and rather rapidly. Uh, so when it starts out that way, to me, it's overly sweet. And then it goes through kind of a perfect zone and then it goes into a dilute zone. So there's – it's interesting in that it's a drink with an arc like an old-fashioned but goes through periods of clearly being overly sweet and then diluting down. Um, and so for me, I've come to appreciate 
that I'm worried that a customer is going to taste the first sip and be like, that's too sweet. That's too sweet. It's like you don't understand the drink style. They're like, no, no, but it's too sweet. You know what I mean? And like just <laughs> like I like go to bed at night thinking about that person and it just burns me. So like often I will just not <laughs> – do a drink or a food or anything where someone needs knowledge to enjoy it. And if they don't have that knowledge, they're going to like screw their face up into that face and say something like that because it just hurts me. It hurts me. Like I can't control what people think, but I can control what I serve them. But I, I've, I've, again, I've lost this battle. People love tiki. I like tiki. And I just have to accept that you know, someone is going to make that face and say that the drinks are too sweet. And Not at your place, though. Well, I mean, a good tiki drink has to start too sweet. It right. must. Oh, you're going to do some. We there's one on the menu, and I forget what they what it's called. The remedy now because it's a it's a it, this is it, Don. Another thing, interesting thing about drinks is that drinks are typically ascribed to individual bartenders, whereas uh, culinary stuff is ascribed typically to just the chef. And for us, because it's teams working on all the drinks. We still assign things or we'll say this person ran point on this drink. So Don ran point on this and he's the one who's pushing because no one else has really the energy to punch that through me. You know what I mean? So Don <laughs> punched this through me and they were going to they were gonna call it something like Dave gave up or something like that. But it's called The Remedy because it's a vegan painkiller. Uh, and um, it's good. It's a good drink. I always knew it was a good drink, but – you know, it, it's just that's one of those fights I lost. Another one of those fights I lost. So we have a pebble ice machine, and bartenders, by and large, love tiki. By the way, um, bartenders, though, in general, they understand the arc of a drink because they're professionals. Whatever, uh, you know, you you learn by losing. <laughs> well, uh, Dave, thank you so much for for coming on. If you know, if you're out there and you want to go to a bar where someone is thinking more about the drinks and their arc and ice and freezing ice than, well, I am about anything. Um, <laughs> existing conditions, not pre-existing conditions. Not pre-existing. It's not a medical problem. Yeah. Yeah, existing conditions. It's it's based on the fact that we didn't do a lot to the space. Like, we're using the same table bases. The tops of the tables were too bent, so, like, glass wouldn't sit on them properly. We, we wanted to keep the bar but couldn't because we had to move it. Uh, but the light fixtures are all the same. The table bases are the same. The floor mm -hmm. is the same. The walls are the same. Everything's the same. We didn't want to spend a lot of money on uh, the space because, to us, it's more about the people. So, ah, no, 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 that's everything. Thank you so much for coming. All right, hey, thanks for having me. <laughs> that was Dave Arnold. For more Dave, and we all need more Dave, check out his podcast, Cooking Issues, on the Heritage Radio Network, or check out his bar, Existing Conditions, which may or may not be open in New York City. This week's episode of The Eater Upsell is brought to you by Buffalo Trace Bourbon, which is great because it was the cocktail-themed episode, so... What a win! What, what a, a world! Wi everyone wins. Win, win, win. Uh, I love Buffalo Trace Bourbon. It is actually one of my favorites. But Daniel Janine here has mm -hmm. never tried it before. So we went out, we spent our own money to buy a bottle. We're gonna try it on the spot. We're gonna try it. Here Amanda, what do you love about this bourbon? Um, well, I have to say I'm a fan of most bourbons, but what I like about this one is that it's super smooth. Mm -hmm. You can put it in cocktails or just drink it on or its just, own. Or shoot just it down. It. Just shoot it down. Well, I wouldn't shoot it. No. I would, I would okay. sip it. 
Sorry. But I'm not. I'm different. I mean, maybe you shoot. Oh, talk. God. Okay. No, no, no. I make this about Okay. It's not about. This isn't about shots. I'm just saying. You can drink it in a, a different variety of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, why don't you taste it and tell us tell us what you what you're tasting? What do you think? Vanilla? Definitely vanilla. Molasses? Molasses. Kind of nutty. Very smooth. Very round. What a good yeah, really good. You're into it? Yeah, I would take this. I mean, not we're not we're not usually supposed to talk about competitors. If I was at a bar right now and they were like, order a bourbon, I would for sure order a Buffalo Trace. New favorite of the Eater Upsell, Buffalo Trace. Next up, we're talking to Neil Bodenheimer. He's the owner of Cure, a very big deal bar in New Orleans that just won a James Beard Award and Cane and Table, also in New Orleans. He is the new owner of Tales of the Cocktail, the bartending world's premier festival uh, it's a week-long event that takes place in July. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, he took it over because the, for- the former owners had to step down after one of them appeared wearing blackface during Mardi Gras. Yeah. So then- that's fun. <laughs> yeah, there was um, there was huge outrage in the bartending community, obviously. Yeah, and, and widespread, I would say, beyond that. Um, right, of course. Yeah. And a lot of people were saying they were going to boycott it, and yeah. it seemed like if they didn't sell it, it was going to it die. It was going to die. So Neil um, and a large, uh, big deal New Orleans family took it over, and they're rejiggering it to be a not-for-profit organization with a philanthropic arm that is going to give away $250,000 to a deserving cause. So we're going to hear a little bit from Neil about what the actual festival is. And, and then, how it's different this year. And then straws. Neil, welcome to the Upsell. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, so first, I want to talk about Tales of the Cocktail. You recently took it over. For people who don't know what it is, what is Tales? So Tales is um, is the world's leading cocktail festival. And that's kind of short and sweet. Uh, it grew out of the craft cocktail movement. Uh, and it's uh, this would be the 16th year of wow. Tales. And this will be our first year uh, controlling Tales. Who is our? Uh, so the board is Gary Solomon Jr., Gary Solomon Jr., uh, Gary Solomon Sr., and myself. Okay, who yeah. who are those guys? For those who uh, know, so they are really like one of our leading families in New Orleans, okay. and they're like incredible philanthropists. And so they their idea was to get into tales and turn it into a full fledged foundation, uh, and so we can do year over year giving with it. And up until now, was it a for-profit event? Uh, well, it was. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was. Um, it, there were two sides of the business. Uh, one was an educational nonprofit, and then the other was a for-profit management company. Oh, okay. And so we've um, so we've taken everything and put it into the uh, put it into the nonprofit and changed the mission of the nonprofit to be a foundation. And now we're uh, and now our goal this year is to give back two hundred fifty thousand uh, dollars through our grants committee. Uh, come, come hell or high water. All right. <laughs> I want to get more into that, but first to set the tone for people, it's in July in New Orleans. That's always the thing that's baffled me about tales. So, and it is just like every bartender, important bartender from around America, around the world, come flocks to New Orleans so, and kind of just like overruns the town. That's yeah, my impression. Yeah. So the, so the uh, <laughs> that's a pretty valid impression. Sw- sweaty, uh, a sweaty event. So and so it's not in July just to make bartenders sweat, just so everybody <laughs> knows. It's, um, it, it's tales. What makes tales special is that it is driven. It's it's driven by bartenders. It's for bartenders. Um, 
but some bartenders make more money than others, and the reality is is that New Orleans is a very inexpensive place to visit in the third week of July at mm. the you know the depths of our down season and. Right. And, um, finally makes sense to me. Yeah. (laughs) And (laughs) yeah, it's cheap and, and, and it's plentiful and, and, and our community is really wants to welcome people in that want to be there. And, and so for us, it's, you know, if you look at the bar and restaurant and hospitality industry in New Orleans, it's a, it's a critical week, third week in July for us, because without that revenue, it's actually 18 plus million dollars in in economic impact the third week of July. Damn. And that's, I mean, I, you know, the thing they, that I'm like most proud of and as someone, I, this is my first year in, you know, working within the Tales organization, but I was always proud as a local bar owner and, and local bartender. I was very proud that the bar and restaurant community were some of the first people to spend money in New Orleans post-Katrina. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tales didn't reschedule. It just happened. And, and it happened enthousi- enthusiastically too. So it's... Uh, you really can't separate uh, tales from New Orleans and when it happens and mm-hmm. the impact that mm-hmm. it makes. So it's good for the city, good for the business, but also good for bartenders who are flying in to have yeah. cheaper places to stay, cheaper exactly. flights. You know, it's a win-win. Can you talk about what happened with the previous ownership? There was a little bit of a controversy there. Yeah, I mean, I try not to get into it because I think it's been pretty well covered. Mm-hmm. Um, but but they uh, they ended up. Uh, selling selling tales to us because there was some controversy around it, uh, and so that's been one of our big goals, kind of moving forward, is to number one reposition tales so that it can be here for years to come, and to focus on on impact, but also on how we can move the industry forward and how we can be a place for diversity inclusion um, and start tackling you know health and wellness and mental mental health and, and some of these big, you know, some of the big issues that are really, you know, facing our industry. So what are you doing in that regard? I know there's like some new initiatives. There are. So, um, you know, one of the biggest things that we're doing is, um, is with STAR, and that's a Louisiana nonprofit uh, sexual trauma awareness resource. Um, and so they've been in, they've been in existence since the late 1970s. And so they're going to come. They're going to do a free seminar for us, but they're also going to provide support for the festival uh, with a hotline. So if anybody uh, has any issues, that they they have a resource where they can go and they can get professional help. And that was really important to us. Um, that, you know, we just live in a time where we're seeing so many things kind of come to the surface that have been brushed aside for so long, mm-hmm. and we wanna we wanna show that we're committed to it. And you know, on the diversity piece, we have gone back uh, and really asked asked our committees to, to do a better job of being diverse um, on on all levels. I mean, that includes, um, you know, gender, that, that includes ethnicity, um, and, you know, geography. And so we're, you know, we're, we're saying we need to change this thing from the inside out. And that starts with finding the positions of power and making sure that that they're as diverse as they need to be. So have you had to make commitments about like I guess the diversity of the panels or the seminars you're going to be doing and, and Yeah, I mean look, it, I mean it, it's not you don't just wave a magic wand and and solve and solve these An things. Entire it's, industry. <laughs> yeah, it's year over year change and it's mm-hmm. making that 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 commitment from the base planning of it and so 
it really has been, you know, asking our director of, of, of education to take a really hard look at his panels and say, you know, are they diverse enough? And if they're not trying to find substitutes, you know, like a few substitutions or just just being mindful. And mm-hmm. I think that's I think that's where change starts is from is being mindful. Were some of those panels built already? They were. So you've had to really shuffle them up? Some of them we have, yeah. Yeah, some of them we had. And that's uh but that's that's something that we that we know that we have to do. And and that's not saying that everything has been shuffled, but you know, these are important things for us and if they're important for us, we have to be willing to take action. So what is an example of a non a non drinking event at Tails? Well, so we uh, in Tails past or or Tails eighteen. Sure, Tails eighteen. So we actually are putting together a sober space at the New Orleans Athletic Club. Oh, is this um, the first time? Uh, the first time, to my knowledge, I don't oh, wow. know if they've if if they've done it before. Um, if they did, I was I was unaware of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are, you know, really we're going to be holding AA meetings every morning, and uh, and health and wellness uh, classes, and the, I mean there are a bunch of other things that I can get into, but mm-hmm. it's. Um, you know, but not, but not without looking at all my notes. I've got about twenty thousand <laughs> events in my in my not head sure. right now. You know, bartending. It wasn't always the profession that it is today, and you know, I I, I remember telling telling my parents when I was coming up, like, "Hey, I want to be a bartender," and they were like, "Come on, you're, you're, you know, you got to be kidding me. This is not this is not a profession." Mm-hmm. But it's become a real profession, and with that, um, we have to do a better job of making it into. You know, a professional environment, and some of these issues that we're dealing with, kind of industry-wide, are the way that we is the path forward to making sure that we have a more, you know, a better workplace and a stronger profession. Mm-hmm. And I think you have to be able to say, you know, I don't, I don't want to drink. Like my business partner at Canaan Table doesn't really drink, and and Kirk has done. He's he's an amazing guy, but he said, you know, in order for me to be my best in this in this profession, uh, and and best husband and best boss, it's probably better if I if I don't drink or drink on very 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 you know very seldomly. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's more of an open conversation these days? The idea of alcoholism and also depression within the bartending community. Certainly, and I mean I think that you know over the past week it's uh, it's you know it's 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 actually increased, which is great. And I think that you know with Anthony Bourdain that we um, you know that we see that. You know, we have to. In, in hospitality, we spend so much time taking care of other people and putting ourselves last. And I, I think that we have to change that slightly. And that's not to say that we don't want to take care of our guests, but you have to also take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And that is that takes a little convincing for people that are used to taking care of other people. So you said you like to keep a low, a low profile. Um, when they when they offered you this this job that is clearly like one of the most public positions in the cocktail community, especially with something that had this kind of tarnished reputation, did it, did it take you a lot of convincing? Like, weren't you scared? It was well, yeah. I mean, but it didn't take a lot of convincing. But I was I'm, I was scared. I still am scared. <laughs> you know, I don't like you know, and no one wants to you know no one wants to stick their neck out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think. It, for me, it was about a sense of duty. Uh, Tails has done a lot for me and for my career, and its impact on on New Orleans is 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 invaluable into the New Orleans bartending community. So, I, I really looked around and I said, it took 15 years to build Tails. If Tails were to go under, or to leave the city, you know, what? How long would it take 
for us to, to, to build a replacement. And, you know, what, look, third week in July, nothing's, if tails were to leave, if, if, let's say it would have sold to an out-of-town group of investors that would have moved it. Um, you know, the reality is, is that nothing else is coming. Not mm-hmm. in the third week of July. It was built. It was built in New Orleans, and that was a big part of why it was built. And it's, it, is, it is a gift that previous ownership gave to the city, and, and we want to make sure that we can preserve that and, and advance it. So speaking of advancing it, you are adding this grant, $250,000. What kinds of organizations or people are you hoping to dole it out to? Well, so the, so the three pillars that we think about are to educate, support, and advance. So they have to fall under those three pillars. Um, but we put a call out for, for letters of intent. We received 150 in mm. a very short period of time. And uh, we just went through the first round, and we've asked uh, – I think 52, so about a third have gotten through to the next round, and they're going to write full-on grant proposals. So actually, one of the reasons why, why we're up here right now is to meet with the grants committee. It's uh, 12, in, 12 individuals um, from the hospitality community, leaders from all over the country that'll, that'll come together and decide where the money goes. So it's uh, it's pretty exciting for me. I, I, don't, I don't get a vote in it, but, mm-hmm. I'm, but I'm very excited to watch them uh, decide where the money goes. Is the money coming from philanthropists or from sponsors or a combination? It's coming, it's, so it's coming from sponsors. So the, okay. you know, the, the big difference is we we make money to give it away now. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of that depends on, on, our, on the level of uh, ticket sales, um, sponsors, support in general. And so right now it's not coming from, from philanthropists, but over time we would love to see it's become a vehicle for giving, mm-hmm. and that's—I mean—that's the reason why we did it. I and mean, so, you, you know, getting back to your question, if you asked if it was hard for me to say that if it took a lot of convincing, no. I mean, it didn't take a lot of convincing because uh, we were doing it for the city, we were doing it for the industry, and we were going to give back. And those are three things that you know that those are three big check marks for me. Uh, and so, it wasn't hard to say yes, but the hard part is sticking your neck out for something that is that is distressed. But, you know, there, there are opportunities in life that come that you can't say no to. And if everybody wants to make a positive impact on the world, and this is our chance. Mm-hmm. Were you involved politically with the bartending scene before, or were you just a, just a, a barkeep with, uh, with a couple bars? I, uh, I, no, I always try to stay out of politics within the bar scene, So, which is funny that now I'm, like, kind of square in the middle of politics. <laughs> um, and it's not... A comfortable place for me to be in the middle of politics, but I, um, you know, you have to do what you have to do to get things done. Mm-hmm. So, did you write in our notes that it's Strawless? Is that right? <laughs> it is, is it, it Strawless? It is Strawless. Yep. That's amazing. It, I went to um, Jim Meehan's poor conference in mm-hmm. Paris last year, and that's yeah. every that's all everyone was talking about was how everyone was going Strawless. And now over the the course of this year, I keep seeing it, especially in bars. It's like a bartender passion. It is. And uh, I, I think that, I mean, you see bartenders in, in, in just full full transparency. I'm I'm working on that in my own bars. And but we, you know, you have you have a stock of plastic straws and you're not going to just go throw them in a landfill. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it's been a big thing for us to work on. But I think a lot of it I've been motivated by other people. And I think that's the, the great thing about this movement is that people are saying, hey, this is wasteful, and we've got to figure out a way to solve this. And 
it's really started as a grassroots effort and now it's becoming more mainstream and we're excited to be a part of it with Tails. Do you think it's because bartenders just deal with straws so often? Like yeah, every mean, time you put a straw in a drink, you're like, oh God, well, I mean, versus and, like, I don't know, not, coffee shops don't seem that motivated to get rid of straws. I mean, coffee shops should. They should. But, um, you know, I mean, I think that there are a few challenges around it, but I think that, you know, as you look, I mean, bartenders are very used to it. A lot of bartenders straw taste too for years and years and years. So not only are you giving a guest a straw. Two straws per drink. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Oof. So, yeah. I so mean, now that, what do they do? So now it's uh, a lot of people use tasting spoons, but mm. they'll but they'll put them in you know in a in a solution. Hmm. When you say strawless, does that mean entirely strawless, or you are open to the paper straws and metal straws? That's a good question. Um, I'm sure that we are open to uh, to paper straws and metal and, and metal straws because they're um, you know because they're sustainable. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, look, I, I would love to put a call out to anybody that can. They can figure out a, the, a really great straw. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're you gonna not, make not a, a fortune. Fan, not a fan of the paper straw. I am not a fan. Maybe of the paper Bill straw Gates at all. will tackle it next. Yeah, hopefully. <laughs> um, but I mean, I feel like the paper straw is is rough because it deteriorates and it also imparts a little texture. Um, we we had a bar that used to focus on exclusively on on cobblers and low proof drinking and and you know the very you know so the cobbler was kind of the first use of the straw and it was like this mm-hmm. this um, really amazing invention uh, at, you know at, at the time and and particularly considering that that uh, that dentistry was not uh, was not what it is today uh, the straw was a great way to, 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 to bypass your teeth mm-hmm. um, and so dentists still love straws but the uh, you know you want to try and find the way I mean a plastic straw is a great vehicle because it doesn't impart chill you know it's not conductive yeah and it doesn't impart flavor so like the the, like the first straws were like uh wheat straws uh which are incredibly fragile we used them at, at the bar and the first thing people do is they grab their fingers and they press them to see what they see what you know how firm they are it's like it's it's like involuntary and so everybody would come get the straw and they'd crack it mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh so those don't work uh, but and then there were there were macro, like long macaroni straws, but those impart texture, uh, not not great for for those that are that are gluten sensitive, and uh, and then paper which which mm-hmm. deteriorate mm-hmm. and then and then came and then certainly metal straws are great but they're hard to clean. So people steal them, and people steal them, yeah, and they're expensive, mm-hmm. uh, and they are conductive. So if you if you do have bad teeth, they uh, mm. they will they will hurt your teeth. So what are people doing if they are serving cobblers or or drinks that kind of need? I mean, you see a, a lot. Of, I mean, a lot of people are using paper straws yeah. right now, and I, I I think that's still a better option than throwing a plastic straw, mm-hmm. uh, you know, putting it into the environment and where it's not going to break down. But it's, um, you know, I think I still think we need to find a better solution. I've seen some silicon stuff that is mm-hmm. I think is really encouraging, um, but still you got to figure out a way to clean it. Clean it well. Yeah. You know, you can't can't reuse a straw if you're not if you're not getting the the uh, sanitation part right and the cleanliness. No one mm. wants that. No, no, oh, gross. Can you talk a little bit about the New Orleans bar scene in general? You've been, I mean, you grew up there, but then moved back in 2006. Is that right? So yeah, so I grew up in New Orleans, uh, and and my family's been there for for generations, and uh, I have I have a deep love for the city. But I actually I used to live up here in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, bartended up here and 
and I was trying to open a version of Cure up here. And then Katrina happened, and I wanted to move home. So within mm-hmm. a year, I was so back kinda home. So kind of called you back. Yeah, I think if you were from New Orleans at that time, uh, you felt like you know you knew no one else was gonna was gonna rebuild it for you. So if you were from New Orleans and you cared about the city, you wanted to go back home, mm-hmm. and and I, and I did. So that's how I ended up back, and it was the, you know the best decision I've ever made. I still love it up here, uh, but I'm very very happy to live in New Orleans and. And to be a part of the bar scene in New Orleans. And so we opened up Cure at the very beginning of 09. And uh, so we're getting ready to celebrate our 10th anniversary. Wow, congrats. And you just won a James Beard Award for your (laughs) your bar Cure. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Has that changed anything? Um, I mean, yes and and no. Are you getting more, more tourists or? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's funny. You know, we've been... You know, no one, no one really prepares you for this, mm-hmm. and and so there, you, you're kind of confronted with an opportunity. I mean, when you're when you when you've been in business for almost ten years, and you, you know, you you could basically set a set a watch to what our business cycles are like, and who comes in, and what they know about what we do, and and now to, we've shaken that up since then, and and so we, uh, you know, we find that there are so many people that are coming through that have no concept of what we do. And so in a lot, a lot of ways, it feels like our first year when mm. we were trying to explain cocktails to our guests. So <laughs> it, in some ways, it's a step back, but there's also uh, some some staffing pressure because, you know, we're, I think we're up like 35 or 40%. Wow. And since, since the awards, so, <laughs> you know, we've gone from having the perfect staffing amount to being like, do we need to hire more people? Is this, is this a bump? Is this a new reality? Right. You know what? Do you so then staff up, and then all of a sudden yeah. it goes away? And then you know you don't want to bring people on, and then have to let them go, right? Because it, so it's there's been a lot of evaluation, kind of post James Beard Award that I, I think I think that we weren't really prepared for. Mm-hmm. But I think that you can look at this two ways. You know, you can look at the people that want to come to Cure and have a vodka soda, and say man, why are these people coming through? Or you can say, this is a great advantage. You know, this is a great uh, opportunity mm-hmm. to, to teach more people about what we do and about cocktails and to really uh, reach out to more people. And so we're, uh, you know, we're pretty excited about it now, but it definitely took a minute for us to kind of adjust to our new reality. Between tales and, and having the two bars, do you ever have a chance to like actually make a drink? No. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. Every now and then, I you know, every now and then I do, and it, it's funny. I, uh, you know, it's you know, every now and then I'll make a martini or I'll, I'll make an. I, I'm I'm a big classics guy. You still so. got it. <laughs> I mean, it's slow, but it's good. <laughs> so when you go out with food people, sometimes they will have just a little bit to eat, so they can go to a bunch of different places. Mm-hmm. Do bartenders ever yes. work in that way? So yeah, you'll like absolutely. do uh, like five bars in one night, but have like a couple sips? Yeah, you either you'll have a couple sips or you'll try and like kind of navigate the menu to find some like lower proof things. Mm-hmm. But Is that easier these days? It is. It's a lot easier. I mean, I think that uh, I think as we get more and more fortified and aromatized wine uh, into the market that we're uh, – that you're seeing not only do bartenders have more things to work with, but they want to work with them more because you have newer and interesting flavors. And I think with the rise of spritz culture, mm-hmm. um, I think that you're seeing more and more people, more and more guests excited about 
about low proof as well. And I just and think they can drink more. And they can drink more, which you I mean, try I a mean, couple cocktails in one yeah, place. Yeah, I mean, cer- certainly the economics add up. Yeah, uh, make more money. For, yeah, uh, and that's you know, in the in, in the old days, you'd put someone down, serve them an old fashioned in a Manhattan, and then uh, and then something and then else, the brown and stirred, <laughs> and you might get two, might get three drinks. Right. Uh, and so the economics aren't, aren't nearly as good as the as the low proof stuff. Um, and there's, I mean, when you're dealing with wine, you obviously have spoilage to consider. Mm. So that that's definitely something that you try and you try and keep into, you know, you know, as you're pricing stuff, you try and keep that keep that in a, you know, under advisement. Right. Amanda, have you heard the term spritz culture before? I think I have. have. I, I have. <laughs> I'm, I'm friends with too I many come, people who have written spritz, from, spritz books or yeah, make canned I come spritzes. From, from a very nerdy, nerdy mindset, <laughs> and I apologize. Finally, Julia Momose wants you to stop using the word mocktail. Julia has run the bar at Green River, worked at the Aviary, and is now designing an alcohol free beverage pairing at two Michelin starred Oriole in Chicago. You've been fairly public about your disdain for the word mocktail. Is that is that fair to say? I guess so. I feel like maybe that's that's the one thing that I'm known to really dislike. That I'm openly <laughs> that's your well. You know, it's a fine dislike. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for the most part, I try to keep it positive. You know, um, try to support you know, build up, but, but this is that, that one thing that I really want to tear down and, mm-hmm. and actually tear out of the dictionary. I'd love for, for it to disappear. You know, it's had its time. Can you talk a little bit about what's happened in the cocktail world um, as far as, you know, lower ABV or lower alcohol percentage drinks? What does the, the landscape look like today? Today, I think it's very exciting. Um, everywhere from three Muslim star restaurants to local kind of neighborhood restaurants, I'm seeing spirit-free sections or, you know, a dedicated non-alcoholic cocktail list um, that they're actually putting a lot of thought into, you know, something beyond a lemonade or even like a fancy, you know, strawberry lemonade, going far beyond that and thinking about how these liquid flavors can all come together and be really delicious next to food. Um, people are actually starting to think about that elegant, sophisticated dining experience that extends beyond alcohol being in the glass. In a way, it's as if the perceived value mm-hmm. has kind of shifted from this is a, a very good cocktail, a very valuable cocktail, because it has, you know, two ounces of foolproof spirit versus this is a really beautiful, well thought out, crafted drink in which a lot of time and preparation went into. So what's your big beef with, with mocktails, the word? <laughs> <laughs> Simply put, for me, mocktail is essentially a compound word, taking the word mock mm-hmm. and cocktail and, and bringing them together. And then if you look at the def- definitions for the word mock and think about the connotations, it's simply put to make fun of or a mock-up which is also something that's not complete, you know, something that's just thrown together. Right. It implies lesser. Yeah. And even in worst cases, it's, you know, mockery. Mm-hmm. And to me, the, the word mocktail, it crushes 
is any semblance of sophistication and thoughtfulness or allure. What I also really hate about what I hate about it, what I dislike about it so strongly is the fact that when you're allowed to hate it, it's the only thing you hate. (laughs) Just as one thing, (laughs) (laughs) maybe a couple others, but (laughs) when a guest comes up and they crinkle their brow and they get all sad, they get sad eyes and they say, can I have a mocktail? Mm-hmm. And it's a question of that, like a, like a question mark, like it's hurting them to ask for it. It's almost like they're embarrassed to ask for it. That's what really bothers me. The fact that it, it takes away the, the power of the choice. Choosing not to drink alcohol, is, it's great. Choosing yeah. to drink alcohol, that's fantastic too. But it's a choice that they've made and they should feel empowered by that choice, not embarrassed by the word that was associated or attached to their choice. And you think spirit free is the best option? I've read on your on your on your manifesto that virgin cocktail, soft cocktail, non-alcoholic cocktail, zero proof. These these you think these are all also kind of negative, right? In a way, yeah, and I think they all rely on cocktail. Yeah. Or drink or beverage, but they all rely on something else. That thing that has alcohol, meaning they're all versions of and I genuinely feel as though Spirit Free stands alone. Spirit Free doesn't need to be based off of an old fashioned or a last word. Spirit Free can be its own dark, brooding, late night sipper or mm-hmm. bright, refreshing, lively summertime fling. You know, Spirit Free doesn't have to be a virgin mojito yeah. or <laughs> it's on a kitty cocktail. And what about from the uh, what about from the restaurant industry? Are they worried that enough cool bartenders like you come along and you're going to kill all their all their alcohol profits? I don't think no. <laughs> I don't think people are going to stop drinking alcohol anytime soon. I feel as though there is a general move towards balance, more mm-hmm. balanced drinking habits and lifestyle, more health conscious conscious. And I think that's fantastic. I certainly love working with alcohol Hmm. (laughs) and creating cocktails and the experience around that and the the flavor that you get from a spirit, that backbone that is so integral to the structure of a balanced cocktail is, Mm -hmm. is something really unique and something special. I think that especially in restaurants, the low proof and spirit free is an option that wasn't really explored before. And so, you know, we're having guests drinking one, maybe two drinks, whereas now there's the possibility that they might enjoy two, three, even four. And so with that... Dollar signs. Increasing revenue, yeah. <laughs> so that's that's definitely a plus. Right. Well, thank you so much for, for calling in. Thank you for having me. Julia Momose is working on her dream project called Kumiko in Chicago, which she says will have a near-even split between spirited and spirit-free drinks. Thank you so much for listening to our cocktail-themed episode. Thank you to Buffalo Trace, our superstar sponsor. Quite delicious. Thanks to Dave Arnold. Please be sure to check out his bar, Existing Conditions, if and when it opens in New York. And Neil Bodenheimer, who you can catch at Tales of the Cocktail or at his bar, Cure or Canaan Table. The upsell is made by Amanda Clute 
and me at Vox Media in New York City. Thanks to Miles Yule and Carrie Clements for all your help.